Welcome to Archaeology Books for Fun, a podcast where we discuss books that are about archaeology but anyone can enjoy. I'm your host, Tristan Herrenstein, and with me as always is my co-host, Barbara Clark. Hello, everybody. Today we're going to start the third section of Stealing History by Roger Atwood. If you haven't been following the previous two, these are all about the antiquities black market worldwide and why it happens and all the complicated issues and all the problems that result from it. So we're going to dive in on this one. Before we do, though, if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider giving us a like, review, subscribe, leave a comment in the comment sections if you're watching this on YouTube. All that helps us get the word out and helps people discover us, and we really appreciate the feedback, too. So without further ado, I think there's a lot going on in this section. Yeah, it's going to be hard to cover it all, so we'll have to be a little selective, I think. I think we're definitely not going to be able to cover it all. So yeah. if you want to get the full story, of course, we recommend the book. As far as the writing style goes, this is my favorite one I think we've read so far. So I really do enjoy it and recommend it. Yeah, and I mean, we're reading it and taking notes, so it probably takes us a little bit longer to read it than it would, you know, somebody who's reading this for enjoyment. But I think... Even if you're just kind of skimming over it, you're going to get a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely recommend. I mean, I hope everybody's reading all the books we talk about. But <laughs> right, but definitely I know the reality, this of course, one. too. Yeah. Starting off section two of the book with chapter eight, just titled "The Actual Object." And so we've been dealing with the looters, people actually doing the digging, to the people, the go-betweens who are distributing the stuff to the collectors. This is kind of a history of looting. At least that's how it starts. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to note and important to note that looting is not something that is new. Mm -hmm. It's taken place pretty much since the beginning of humanity, since there's been something to loot. I think what's interesting is how the perception of looting has changed as well as kind of the purpose, for lack of a better word. I mean, it used to kind of be like a gentleman's touristy kind of thing. Like you brought back a little trinket from your travels and it happened to be thousand year old object from whatever site you were visiting. And obviously back in the day, they probably didn't think anything of it. But now we know better. And I think it's interesting, too, that the author even says, you know, it's a cheap shot to judge past activities by today's standards. So we can read through this and think about how horrible it is, but we're reading it with our modern day knowledge. Yeah, I forget the quote exactly. He doesn't let that off entirely because sometimes oh, no. that kind of thing is said as an excuse for we can't judge the past at all by our standards. Yeah, and he said it's, you know, it's hard not to be struck by the amount of essentially vandalism that took place. He goes into talking about how a lot of this stuff that was looted in the past ends up in our modern day museum collections, which is a whole nother issue in and of itself. And that's what this chapter is really about. Right. And I think a lot of our listeners and readers would maybe be familiar with the Elgin marbles. And so he goes into a little bit of the history about, you know, Lord Elgin and his collecting of early Greek antiquities and I don't know if we want to go into like the whole story. It's kind of a long one. Right. But the Elgin marbles ended up in the um in the British Museum, correct? Right. Correct. Yes. Of course, everybody, if you're reading the news, and I think we've talked about it in previous podcasts, a lot of museums are guilty of this. But I would say the British Museum is kind of at the forefront of this issue and one of the biggest 
contested items in their collection is the Elgin marbles, or at least most well-known yeah. object that's being contested. Yeah, so uh, a few notable things with the El Lord Elgin story. We're talking about 1776 or so. He was an ambassador to the Ottoman Empire and used his position and contacts as an ambassador with the local governments and with the British Empire to basically steal these things from the Parthenon and ship them back under government expense, uh, lost a ship on the way. It's because he didn't want to ship it over land because of war at the time. And he thought he was saving or he was, he was going to be a savior of British art, essentially, is how I understand. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of parallels to what we've talked about in previous chapters regarding, you know, the abuses of government officials using their position and the idea that these folks are protecting the item, saving the item, in some cases, even saving the item from the country of origin right. because they can't take care of it properly kind of thing. And it's similarly, it's couched in a sense of altruism, but yeah. ultimately comes down to a personal ego. Yeah. One thing that struck me particularly with this story is that when he took them back to England, there was an initial fervor as people kind of like, these are so cool and everything. And then everybody kind of soured on him over this. Yeah, um, <laughs> so that's talking quite about, a story. Talking about using ethics of today to judge the past, this was criticized even back in the 1800s as an unethical thing to have done. Not Sometimes it was for the things he had taken, but also for how he had gone about it and all these other details. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. Well, the reason seemed to be because people felt like he abused his position in government. Right. And so he made a lot of enemies, it seems like almost out of jealousy. Somewhat, but then he was also, there was also straight up criticism of the fact that he took them at all. Yeah. Essentially, like, I think he was close to bankruptcy and he never quite recovered. Even at his death, he was pretty much like in poverty by, you know, whatever standards those may be, right? Right. He ended up having to sell the artifacts to the British government, who then gave them to the British Museum, but he got way less than what he asked for. Yeah, they were like, nope, we're not paying that. Yeah. And he had to accept. And importantly to today's discussion, I think in particular, Greece has since, starting back in 1898, asked for these back. And to this day, they have not been returned. And another thing I thought was kind of an interesting tie-in was neoclassical architecture is attributed to Elgin. And our Washington Monument actually has a chunk of marble from the Parthenon that was donated by the Greek government in like 1845. So this monument that is essentially like a symbol of civic duty and virtue and stability owes its existence to essentially looting of the Parthenon in some ways. It was you know, donated by the Greek government. It was donated by the Greek government, but like our whole entire, like that neoclassical style and everything is attributed to this guy who was a looter. Right. That's kind of just ironic in a roundabout way. Right. Yeah. One quote I noted here from the director of the British Museum, a museum forms a context around objects that for whatever reason have been alienated from their original place. And that's interesting. The for whatever reason is really interesting phrasing, but also the phrasing context, because I've been to the British Museum. There's no dang context for anything in there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, they don't tell you anything about what it is, what it means. Right. It's just, this is the thing. This is how old it is. This is where it came from. Right. And there's a lot more to talk about with these things. Oh, and in, a, in a, 
I see a consistent like obtuseness around this issue. So another quote from, I think the same person, one has got to recognize that their life, talking about the marbles, has as a part of the Parthenon is over. They can't get the marbles back onto the Parthenon because it's a ruin and because the atmospheric conditions won't allow it. The argument that they normally makes for gathering things together, but he's talking as though if they return to their home country, they have to go back outside. Yeah. That's not the issue. They want them back so they can put them in a museum like they are now. Right. It and, really bugs me. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I've visited the British Museum, too. And as you're walking through it, something that kind of came to my mind is that this museum would not exist if it weren't for the ransacking of other cultures. There's so little in there. I mean, there are objects that have to do with, obviously, British culture. And in some ways, you could even say that these have to do with British culture by means of colonialism, right? Yes. This is true. But uh, so I guess you can make that argument, although I think it's a very weak argument for them to stay where they are. They need to be repatriated back to the country from which they were removed. I, it's as simple as that. Right. I, I guess uh, at some point they were telling Greece that they could loan them, that the British Museum could loan them the yeah. Elgin marbles. And to say that to a country of origin... <laughs> like someone steals your tv well i'll loan it back to you right like, no this was mine <laughs> right <laughs> yeah well, and and he blamed also blamed the greeks for making this a foreign policy issue and i'm like it's theirs they get to decide how they pursue this yeah. you don't get to critique them for that yeah and you made it a foreign policy issue yeah by refusing yeah right yeah such a ugh. but i one thing i think to note is that for elgin to sell the marbles to the British government, it started a long tradition of essentially the state being a last resort for looted items. Mm -hmm. We've seen that. I think it mentioned in previous chapters how U.S. tax law allows collectors to donate their items to museums in exchange for tax deductions. Which means we are paying for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I noted that uh, when the author asked the director of the British Museum about how the British Museum is often cited as a reason for not returning things. He said, it's not my fault. I'm like, yeah, it is. Right. Yes. Absolutely is. It exactly. 100% is. If you're the director of the museum, it is your fault. And you're actively refusing to return right. things to this day. Yeah. Obtuseness is a good way to describe uh -huh. this, Tristan. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is. And I think it's important to, not that we're picking on just the British Museum, which honestly I'm okay doing, but... Also, there's other museums, a lot here in the U.S., the Met, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the Denver Art Museum. A lot of them, or all of the ones I just listed, and probably more that aren't listed, all have items that are from other countries that were looted. And they get in trouble for this a lot. The author mentions that, and he wrote this in 2003, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, they're still getting in trouble for it. I've seen uh, big news breaking on the Met, getting in trouble for having things they shouldn't like yeah. this year. Oh, and he mentions much more, and I won't go into all of them, but it's not just the art museums either. It's things like auction houses, mm -hmm. you know, history museums and things. They're all, all of them are guilty for this. And it blows my mind that this is such a contested issue. And maybe that's just me as an archaeologist, but I feel like as a museum professional, you would understand the importance of context and provenience and also not want to be essentially a safe haven for objects that are looted and, and you know, taking it further down the line, you're enabling 
this illicit market to well, exist. And museums have an ethical obligation yeah. as publicly funded, if nothing else, but just by the nature of their subject, they have an ethical obligation. And it seems like the way it's presented here is there, many of them are failing at it. Yeah. So for the Met you mentioned here, the author cites a case of Roman silver pieces that they have just really strong evidence that these were looted from Sicily and the Met's like, nope, not returning it, basically. I will add that there is a really cool website. I recommend anyone, if you want to check out any of the stuff in this book, if you read it along and you want to see what's happened to it since, there's a website called traffickingculture.org. And essentially it has all kinds of actually great resources on these objects. Everything I looked up in this book is in there and it will tell you what's happened to them since. It gives you the history, the whole history, as well as where they are now, since this was written 20 years ago now. So in the case of like the silver pieces, talks of returns were started in 2003. So when this book was written, and then an agreement was signed in 2006 that allowed the Met to keep them on loan until 2010. And they're now currently back in Italy, this particular piece. So what happened here, and I think we'll see this in another case too, is there, is this the one that was on loan from a collector to the museum? This case or another case, essentially traffickingculture.org noted that once the collector had died and was out of the picture, the museum was suddenly open to talks. And so it seems like the collectors themselves complicate this all quite a bit. Yeah. And another museum that has been criticized is the Louvre. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote in there about from, I guess, someone at the Louvre where they say, we are no more illegal in anything we have done than Napoleon was when he brought all the treasures to the Louvre. And I was like, we know better now. Right. <laughs> you know? Again, colonialism is not an excuse. Um, and I know since like the 1990s, the issue of Holocaust art has added pressure on museums as far as art museums go and how they acquire their arts. And I know there's a difference between art museums and like history museums or archaeology museums. And that's something I'm kind of realizing as I read this book. It's just kind of sad that something like the Holocaust has to be the precipice for for museums to take this more seriously. It doesn't necessarily surprise me, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it would be nice if just the fact that these were looted and that's horrifying and sad in and of itself, if that was enough to want to repatriate these objects. Yeah. Oh, I found the one that I was thinking of. It was the, if you are aware of the Weary Her Heracles Roman statue, it's kind of a famous one. And it's only the top half, basically, that you may have seen before, because that's what's been in the U.S. And essentially, similarly, they had really strong evidence that had been looted from Turkey. They have like a fairly clean break and everything. And they have the bottom half, but the, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts was like, nope, it was looted before. It's old, long time ago. And it's like, we would know about it if someone had looted it 100 years ago or whatever, right? Yeah. And so this one in particular, after Leon Levy had passed, collector who donated it, then the museum, he passed in 2003, another actual coincidence there, and the piece was finally returned in 2011. So some of these pieces that he talks about here have been finally returned. But when he was writing this, this was a current pressing issue, and it still is. It's interesting to me, um, and this is something I remember learning about when I was in school, is the difference between a moral obligation and a legal obligation and how laws sometimes exist because 
we don't all have or operate by the same moral code or moral compass. And I think in cases where museums can claim, oh, it was acquired prior to this law being enacted, it makes me so mad because, okay, so you do not have the legal obligation to return this piece, but that does not negate you from having a moral obligation to return this piece. Yeah. And it shouldn't take, in the cases, in any case, and I know in, we, we will always need laws, right? But in this particular instance, when it's talking about cultural objects, especially some that are sacred cultural objects, it should not take a law for you to understand their significance to the culture of which they belong. To me, it's like as simple as that. Mm -hmm. All this has been a growing problem and growing awareness. And so some laws were starting to come into place in 1972. Congress passed a law. It was uh, weirdly specific, prohibited importing pieces from above-ground structures from most of Latin America. The above-ground structure is an interesting caveat there. Right. In a lot of cases, it makes the law essentially useless. Right. But it might have had some effect. And it was kind of the start, I think, for more involved laws. And other countries have started to pass their legislation, too. And we see a lot of bilateral agreements, I guess you would call them, amongst governments in this book. And I, I wish I should have started a list <laughs> of just all the different agreements and laws and kind of a, it would be interesting to do a timeline of all of that because it gets a little bit a little bit difficult to separate them all out as you're reading this book. But if you're reading it for fun, right. you don't necessarily have don't to. Worry about it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, another another museum in 97. This is Museum of Fine Arts Boston again. Opened a gallery, gallery with 34 Mayan artifacts from Guatemala and all the signs of looting and everything. And so Guatemala asked for them back, met with the museum. The museum reportedly said, how much will you pay us for them? Which the museum denies that. So... I don't know about that, but whatever the case may be, they were trying to give the museum some leeway, offered to loan them for a while before they returned them. Ultimately, the museum refused to return them, and trackingculture.org says to this day they haven't been returned. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a very depressing website, Tristan. <laughs> some of it was. It's very useful to get the current yeah. situation on, yeah. that, on these things. Not all of them are happy. Some, well, some, none of them are happy, but some are better than others. But it kind of brought to mind... One thing for me is that the attitude when these countries come and say, hey, this thing comes from our country, for some reason, the impetus is on the country to prove it, whereas it should be on the, the impetus should be on the museum to prove that it wasn't. Right. Yeah. And I know like the British Museum has stopped acquiring items without an undisputed pre-1970 provenience. And that's great and all, but there's legal reasons as to why. But also one thing that, you know, I don't want to get so doom and gloom, the U.S. is essentially becoming the biggest enforcer of the UNESCO Convention. But it just, when you're reading this book, sometimes it's hard to remember that because it seems like a lot of battles have been lost. Mm -hmm. And if we're the biggest enforcer and this many battles are being lost in the U.S., imagine what's going on in other countries. But also, I guess, if I remember correctly, the U.S. is the biggest consumer of illicit goods. Was that correct? I think it was the U.S. and And then Europe. Europe, right? Yeah. So maybe there's hope. Yeah. So this <laughs> chapter starts off really depressing and doom and gloom, and it does progressively get better as we kind of walk into some of the 
areas where we're starting to enforce things more. One thing I found interesting was apparently a kind of animosity of museums towards archaeologists. I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. I, I don't know why. I, I thought we had a better relationship. I feel like a lot of the museums who have the animosity are not history or anthropology museums. I think they're the art museums. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. But here's one quote that struck me. Um, we are sick and tired of biased of reportages that depict museums as if we are hoarders of objects, as if we're putting them away in caves, which they practically are. I had the same note. <laughs> in fact, we present these objects to the public and we write about them a hell of a lot more than the archaeologists. Like, no, you don't. Right. Yeah. I was like, no, 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 no you true. don't. You do put them away in caves. The 34 Guatemalan objects had been in storage for like 40 years yeah. before they were finally used for an exhibit. Yeah. And a lot of times it's archaeologists that are visiting these collections and writing about them. It's not the museum themselves. It's yeah. visiting archaeologists or historians or whatever the case may be that know the collection is there and want to study it. And they're writing about them when they come from an archaeological investigation. It's a hell of a lot more meaningful. That's, yeah, that's a very valid point too. Writing about them from a collection, especially an unprovenienced collection, is better than nothing, but it still can only reveal so much. You brought up briefly the kind of the bilateral agreements. So in, starting in around 1987, wait, is that right? No, 1997, okay. number of memorandum of agreements or MOUs put into place with different countries. And essentially, this was an agreement between the U.S. and these countries to fight trafficking of artifacts. And this is important because the MOU wasn't retroactive. Right. Yeah. So things that were in before that point, people get away with that. Anything that came in after then is illegal. Right. And so then it becomes an issue of proving that situation as well, which is always difficult. Um, but that's important. So keep that in mind. That'll definitely come up. Yeah. And later essentially, on. if you can't prove that it came into the country after the MOU was established, then it's presumed to have come in before. So, again, I feel like the burden of proof is on the wrong side. Right. I did like the salty tears of the looters on the advisory board raid quitting yeah. over that. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a there is a advisory board which was set up and it was at first loaded towards the looters, essentially. Yeah. Archaeologists had a presence, but the majority of people were the ones that were going to support the looting and the antiquities market. Around the times of the MOU, this has been tied closely enough to shady dealings and to the drug trade that it's not looked on favor anymore. And essentially, the power on that advisory board shifted. So there's some delicious bits where the, the looters are rage quitting. Yeah. And I really, this is where it starts to get better. Yeah, because they start to stack the committee with people such as preservationists, conservators, even Native American repatriation experts. And yeah, the looters were not thrilled with that because things were no longer going their way. And this advisory board was important because they actually were the ones that would say whether or not something is present legally or not. Right. Yeah, there's a lot discussed in this chapter, and we're just kind of summarizing it the best we can. But if you really want to get into the weeds, you definitely want to check out this chapter because I think it gives a lot of the kind of meat of the legal environment at that time as far as... Yeah. And also about, you know, just the the issues with the museum collections in general. I will say I found it interesting 
traffickingculture.org. It had a newsletter all the way back into the 90s, apparently. And so I could look at old issues of that, and they had a review of this book in there. Oh. And one of the bits that stuck out to me is the reviewer in this newsletter slash journal, it kind of was a little bit of both, felt that the author of Stealing History here was uh, laid too much at the feet of museums. Too much of this problem, he, he said, was their fault. Did they suggest who else would be at fault? I think their implication would be it is the collectors themselves. But I think he's, you could maybe argue in some small ways he's over, he's done a little too much. But by and large, he did a good job of establishing how the museums legitimize the collections, right. the collectors. Become a last resort for right. getting rid of these collections. And making some money off of it yeah. and at the expense of the government and us. I think he's done a pretty good job of that. So I'm not sure I fully agree with it. And really, this book packs in a lot of information. And by and large, although in this chapter specifically, the museums are discussed in detail, in right. other portions of the book, they aren't. Right. So I would also be interested in knowing the uh, background of the reviewer. <laughs> you know, how I, biased is that review? <laughs> if they're writing for traffickingculture.org, I would suspect they'd have someone very interested in that issue. Right. So I find that has a lot more weight than it normally would, though I do not know the background yeah. of the person doing the writing. It would be interesting to find out. Chapter 8 wraps up by bringing all of this back and relating it back to our FBI case with Agent Bob Whitman. Uh, I suppose that deserves a quick recap for people if you haven't or forgot from the previous episode. This is the case involving the gold back flap from Sipan from Peru that some smugglers are planning to bring into America and sell to a rich buyer called the gold man. Basically, the buyers are FBI agents trying to catch these guys. And we left it off with they had lost contact with them for a while and then they reapproached. And so now they're trying once again to start the deal. Yeah. And this has been like a multi-year operation, a very long-term thing. Yep. A lot of money too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is one thing I like about the author is he keeps tying this case back in. Yeah. And we'll wrap up the case this episode of the podcast, but... I like how he does it and like he talks about all this background like and then this is how this relates. So essentially the MOU when they recontact the the FBI agent is after this MOU has been in place. Right. Which is critical. Right. Which worked out great. You're right. <laughs> and I think it's important, you know, again, I just want to touch on the fact that while the author is using Peru as an example, this is a global issue. I mean, we've talked about the Elgin marbles and things like that. A lot of what happens in this book does end up taking place in the U.S. because, again, we're one of the biggest consumers of these illegal objects. So I think that's important to point out. Yes. And as far as legally restricting this trade, apparently the U.S. compared to Europe is far ahead for once. Right. I was just going <laughs> to say that. <laughs> I was just going to say that. And I was like, do I say that? But you did, Tristan. Yep. Good for you. <laughs> So moving on to chapter nine, we start with the smugglers as it's titled. So we're back dealing with a case I just mentioned, and we start with an individual called Orlando Mendez, who is a Miami boy from a wealthy family. And essentially he's looking for an opportunity to kind of stabilize himself financially for his business. And Dennis Garcia, our smuggler, originally from Cuba, approached him basically 
wanting him to front the money for the deal. So the plan is they're going to go together and buy the back flap to smuggle into the U.S. Mendez is an interesting character in this story because, yeah, he made bad decisions, but he seemed to understand while events were going down that he'd made bad decisions. Yeah. And I mean, it kind of starts out like this is just a business deal on the up and up, you know, like I I think he was, again, deceived by the smugglers, which seems to be a trend in this book and with this industry. So he again, he's one of those characters that's not necessarily bad, even though made poor decisions at the least. Yeah. Like he's I feel like he's just ill informed, potentially making bad decisions. And again, It's a lot of money. So I think a large part of it is just these people are guided by money. They see, you know, dollar signs, essentially, and that's how they make their decisions. Yeah, I think he knew that this was not legal, but I don't think he'd really fully appreciated the repercussions of it. I think that's And I think Dennis Garcia kind of, in some ways, manipulated the situation so that Orlando wouldn't necessarily understand the full extent of what he was doing. Yeah, and Mendez knew he was just there because he had the money. Right, so yeah. He, uh, yeah. He understood his role. Yeah. But I, you're probably right that he kind of was manipulated, for yeah. sure. So he's got the money, basically, to make the deal happen now. Garcia and Mendez go to meet with Whitman, the FBI agent. And his Spanish... Uh, speaking co-agent co- yeah yeah, yeah whatever you would call him his his business partner i guess in the undercover world yep and they meet at a rest stop which i thought was so yeah the jersey turnpike i'm like okay this is starting to look like a mob thing yeah. like that's what first came to my mind was like the sopranos or right. something <laughs> I don't know. And I understand like it's an illegal industry. So, of course, you're not going to meet like at someone's office or something like that. But for someone to be like, yeah, let's meet at a turnpike rest stop. I'd be like, "Ah, I don't know. That seems a little shady. Right. Even for the illicit industry. (laughs) And what do you know? It was they were wired and they had agents nearby recording the thing ways off. And I love how Mendez asked Whitman if he was an undercover cop and he said no. They said, no, are you? Yeah. (laughs) That whole idea that if you ask a cop if they're a cop, they have to say yes kind of came to mind. Or they don't have a case or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's just kind of, again. Well, and the author observed that Whitman often respected these guys for being quite smart and savvy in a lot of ways. But then he hears them make stupid things like that. And he has loses a lot of respect for him. That was funny. And also, I thought it was cool. I didn't realize... They mention in this chapter that Whitman, his parents owned an antique store, so he had a lot of confidence in the subject yeah. area. And I was like, oh, that, you know, mm-hmm. you would never think that your parents owning an antique store would come in handy in your law enforcement career. So it's kind of neat sometimes the way things come about. Well, and I liked the author's interview, description of his interview with Bob Whitman. Sounds like he would be really challenging to have an interview or a conversation with. Yeah. Because this guy, based on the author's description, is like, he sounds sharp. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's not only having a conversation, but he is listening to undertones. He is listening at what's not being said, and he's um, picking up on this stuff. Which and I guess it, probably is why he's such a successful undercover agent. It's part and, of his career yeah. and his training, I'm sure. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to try and interview him. Let's not do that for this podcast. Right. <laughs> that would be cool, though. That would be cool. <laughs> So, yeah, basically everything is agreed upon. 
they will bring the back flap in and they'll meet and Whitman will buy it for the gold man. What was it? El Ocho Hombre? Uh, hombre or Oro. El Hombre Oro? Yes. Yeah. Which I just love that part yeah, still. I'm sorry. I do too. And if you, if you forgot, actually, the gold man is actually uh, Goldman, who is the district attorney. Yeah. Which is just... Mwah. How fitting. <laughs> Fantastic. So they go down to Peru to buy the back flap. And I don't know how you wouldn't know better than this, but the guy who owns it says, okay, give me the money first, and then I'll give you the back flap. They give him the money. He's like, I want more money. Yeah, I know. Like, And maybe <laughs> it's just from us reading this, but I feel like that should have been expected. Right. Like, yeah. like Mendez is new to this. Garcia has been in this business long enough. He should know. Right. So they're having to negotiate and pay more money, basically. And I thought it was interesting because they go and actually see the museum that holds the Sapan artifact. I know. Yeah. While they're waiting to figure out the negotiations, yeah. they're like, let's go to the museum and see the some of the objects from Sapan. I, and this is where we start to see that Mendez might be realizing kind of what's happening, how wrong this actually is. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, taken from his accounts after the fact, but I could, it seems plausible. I can see that. Like you going to actually see the museum where there's interpretive uh, information. And seeing the country and... you're stealing these people from. Yeah. Is from, yeah. Yeah. I can see how maybe you start to grow a conscience. <laughs> yeah. Well, they finally came to an agreement, I guess. Yep. They even enlisted the help of a retired police officer in Peru to get the backpack back flap <laughs> through the airport and I guess into Panama. And then there they enlisted the help of a Panamanian consul general. Consulate, at least. Yeah, so whose son married the daughter of the Panamanian president. Do I have that right, Tristan? Yeah, so he basically okay. got his, his position because of that marriage. Right, which, again, going back to the Elgin Marbles, mm -hmm. we see a long history of that happening. Abusing the power. But they tell uh, Whitman, the FBI agent, that they're using the Panamanian consulate, but not exactly who. Right. And he's, they realize that this could be a problem because there's some levels of diplomatic community and right. stuff involved. Yeah. Which is why they wanted this person in the first place, because he can put his bag through. Without having them checked. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to you that, you know, early on in the chapter, they talk about when they went to see the object, it still had like fa the fabric that Ernil wrapped it in and was dirty and dingy looking. Well, not even that. It had pieces of fabric that it was buried with. Yeah, the original like Peruvian textiles. And then when they go to ship it or transport it, whatever you want to call it, they had washed it and the textile was gone. They cleaned it and scrubbed yeah, it like, or something. And I think they later on in this chapter, another chapter, they talk about how it had just essentially kind of been ruined through right. that. In a lot of ways. They get it or they're getting it, bringing it back and... What they wanted to do was actually have the deal go down in the Panamanian consulate. And the FBI agents are like, of course, we can't do that. Right. Because you can't go in there without special permission. You get that permission, the cat's out of the bag. Yeah, a whole, whole bunch of complications so, happen. Again, smart thinking that should have probably raised enough flags to cancel the deal. Again. <laughs> but, you know, I suppose when you have this much money and time invested... You're not going to, you know, sunk cost, essentially. So Whitman tells them, oh, the we want to have it authenticated, but the authenticator is very old. And so he can't come there. We you need to bring it here and we will go together to get it authenticated. Right. So they end up back at the Jersey Turnpike rest stop. Yes. <laughs> 
And then I guess they had to meet the authenticator in a hotel in Philadelphia, which now they're crossing state lines. I guess Whitman talks a little bit, too, about how with his past experiences, it's normal for even a like very confident dealer to get anxious at the time of the deal. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to instill confidence in them in these kind of weird psychological well, manipulative ways. Utilizing that nervousness. Yeah. Yeah. Like eventually they just want to get rid of it, I guess. Right. And that's what you want them to because then they'll do about anything. But he tries to instill a little bit more confidence in him by sending a bank statement confirming that he had the money. He had withdrawn the money from the yeah, bank. Yeah, to show like, hey, I have the money, but this was actually like FBI money. <laughs> it was actual money, though. Yeah, no, it was did, real money. did have the money, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, so that wraps up chapter nine. Yeah, so that chapter just kind of starts getting back into like what I've come to think of as like the soap opera drama of this or like a really bad like crime crime novel or something because it doesn't seem real like there's numerous times in this book where you're like really that didn't set off red flags (laughs) and well and i still can't get over the gold man i know (laughs) that is amazing oh this book (laughs) yeah moving on into chapter 10 sure thing okay titled the console so it starts off with them setting up the meeting and they have a little bit of a panic because they realize the, the high-level diplomat's going to be there. Yeah, they and weren't expecting that. They were expecting it to be someone who was, like, I guess, lower in the rank and file of diplomatic Well, even staff. the lower, they were worried about that, had some questions. Yeah. Um, and then the upper echelons just said, do whatever you think is right, which sounds like someone's getting thrown under the bus if it's wrong, frankly. Yeah. yeah. So not comfortable, I bet. And then they realize, no, this guy's even higher than that. Right. So they have a whole little panic about what to do about that. I found this chapter really interesting, though, because, you know, my only exposure to, like, the idea of diplomatic immunity is, like, Hollywood, right? right? It's nice that he included information on, like, uh, the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. Mm -hmm. And it talks about how he is immune to arrest, except if it involves a grave crime. And, you know, like, it's not just a blanket they can't be arrested like a lot of times you see on tv and it also had to provide written charges before the arrest yeah which of course isn't going to work in this case right and also as that kind of would come down to pass is they weren't really sure of this person's role yeah and i guess their immunity is only limited to official acts like as part of their job so he would have a really hard time justifying essentially smuggling artifacts as part of his job Right. But yeah, you have to get written charges in advance and all this stuff. So there's a process that really complicates the FBI investigation. They meet at the turnpike as planned and they all get in their cars. The smugglers lead and the FBI agents follow. And all this goes down about whether or not they can arrest this console while they're driving to the supposed authenticator. They arrive and boom, they get like 50 officers arrest these guys. But ultimately, the console. They do let him go because they can't prove that he had any idea what was going on beyond he was giving these guys a ride. Yeah, and I I guess they were worried, too, that if they pushed too hard to have him arrested, a judge could potentially dismiss the entire case that they had built against Garcia and Menendez as well. Or Mendez, sorry. Yeah. So next up is they need to actually authenticate the artifact. They've got the smugglers, and they need to prove that this is actually 
from Sepan. And they had a little trouble with that um, because because of the way you mentioned it was scrubbed clean, basically. They used something abrasive, like a like maybe steel wool or something. Too. Yeah, they didn't specify, but in my mind, I was that's the first thing that came to mind is like a steel wool or like a right. wire brush or something. A lot of the details were gone, and so archaeologists were a little not keen to uh, uh, authenticate it. Although they did finally find a little piece of um, cloth imprint, but basically the only way that can happen in gold is by lots of pressure over a long time. Right. And so that pretty well authenticated this is old. Um, they took it around to a number of people. Did you find it weird that they were essentially toting this around rather than having the archaeologists come to like a government office to authenticate it? I found that strange. Yeah, I yes. Now that you bring it up, I suppose they were taking it quite a far distance. But I guess, still, yeah. But like they described it as like they had the driver and they had an agent with an assault rifle next to the driver. Yeah. And everything. I'm like, wouldn't it be more secure and less risk of damage and things like that if you just had the archaeologists come to a secure facility? <laughs> but yeah, I found that strange. But I, what do I know about undercover operations and artifact authentication? <laughs> right. <laughs> In a yeah, I don't know suit. either. But that's a good thought. I hadn't considered that. Ultimately, they bring it to someone who basically authenticates things for collectors, who is a kind of a shady character. But if they can get him to authenticate it, then they think they've got a really solid case. Yeah. And and he does. Yeah, I guess because he authenticates things for collectors, if he can authenticate this, I guess it in some, and I get it, but in like a very twisted way. Right. (laughs) Uh, has more impact when it comes to like court decisions. I think it, the assumption is that his preference would be to side with the looters or right. collectors or smugglers, yeah. and he didn't do that. So therefore, they think they've got a good case. So they get authenticated, and they go and start questioning uh, Mendez and Garcia. And I, I kind of got it kicked out of... Um, so Robert Goldman introduced himself as El Hombre de Oro. <laughs> and... Garcia, oh, and handed, then handed him his card with his real name on it, at which point Garcia, I guess, fairly earnestly laughed, thought yeah. it was funny. I mean, I get it. Things you have know, gone like, so really... wrong now, and, and like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous, yeah. you guys did this. Yeah. Um, but apparently that kind of loosened things up. He kind of knew he was sunk, so he just kind of spilled the beans on everything. Yeah, but Menendez didn't want to talk. I guess he... He wanted... Yeah, he wanted like uh, representation. He wanted to yeah. see his family or, you know, but whatever. But I, I guess the police had pulled a piece of paper from his pocket mm-hmm. that listed the amounts to be paid to everybody involved. And I right. guess that could be entered into evidence. And that, it, you know, we've seen this in Florida with undercover operations. The A lot of times it's the documentation that these people keep that gets them in trouble. And this is kind of another instance of that. Yeah. So they, they kind of get a lot of information from them, get the whole thing, get some false information too. Like uh, there's a story Garcia spins about the backflap having been owned by a former Peruvian president, which yeah. turned out to be false, but it caused a big stink because it was investigated so heavily. Yeah. Which I guess I would imagine, especially with, you know, investigations like this, you're going to have false information and dead leads and all that stuff to complicate everything. Right. That's probably not unheard of. Unfortunately, the judge decided to give them bail, even though the FBI warned they were flight risk, which they absolutely were. I don't know what what they were thinking giving them bail. Yeah. And then basically everyone else got away more or less. There was a fix-it man sent by the Peruvian guy. He came along. He was supposed to ensure that 
They paid the extra money they were supposed to pay. He got away. The consul fled to his country. Yeah, I guess there was a warrant issued for the fix-it guy, but he has to either come back to the States or go to a country that has a... Extradition. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The diplomat didn't end up getting arrested, but it did ruin his career and his social life, at least. There is that, I suppose. A little bit of justice. Yeah. And I think there's an arrest warrant for him, too, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. So they can't come back. Yep. And I think it's interesting, too, because remember, that's a guy whose daughter was married to the president's son. Right. So that probably, essentially, I would see how the president and... His family would want to even further distance themselves. So he, I would assume he, like, has caused some personal family problems for him, too. Like, yeah. with his daughter, not worth it. Not worth it. And uh, just more cases of, like, no one really comes out on top yeah. of this. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I think, like, Mendez's son passed away. He had a son who was born premature, and he died. And, Men- and Mendez, like, attributes that to, like, the curse of all this yeah he seemed like he felt this was karma yeah situation yeah that's what i was reading implied in that anyway so just it's sad yeah i mean i I don't want to feel bad for these guys because they're not great people but at the same time i still kind of do feel bad for them in some cases yeah and like in the case of mendez he although he did bad i feel like he was misled and didn't quite understand or have a grasp in what he was getting himself into both Garcia and Mendez pled guilty and cooperated. And because of that, they were sentenced to nine months, which considering the value involved was ridiculously light. But, you know, it happened there. And like we've said, Mendez seems kind of genuinely contrite from this whole thing, at least from what the author was telling us. So word of this gets back to Walter Alva, the archaeologist who initially excavated at Sepan. And he is kind of blown away by that they actually got it back. Yeah. The back flap was briefly at the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology. And I guess the University of Pennsylvania was the first, or I guess their museum. I don't know how, you know, I don't know. Universities can be weird with policies and things. So I don't want to just say the University of Pennsylvania, but their museum was the first U.S. institution to renounce publicly the purchase of antiquities that did not have a full pedigree with documentation. And it was one of the first for a long time. Yeah. Although, interestingly, I noticed that this was not an art museum. Right. Yeah, that's true. Anthropology and archaeology. Yeah. So I think that's probably the difference there. Yeah. Well, and then, it, you know, it goes on near the end of the chapter to talk about how museums like the Met mm-hmm. have barred people from examining their collections if they told law enforcement or sometimes even like museum officials that an artifact was potentially looted. Yeah. And the Met is not an archaeology museum or right. anthropology museum. So, yeah, there really is a interesting distinction in how different types of museums deal with this issue. Yep. And finally, we go back to one of the surviving Bernal brothers. If you remember again, this is one of the guys that initially alluded to Pan. And when he hears how much money they were trying to sell the back flap for, he just kind of goes into a fits, basically. Um, says, who got all that money, all that gold? Where did it all go? That's what I want to know. Into the pockets of that jackal Alva, that's where. And like, you don't understand anything that's been going on here, do you? Yeah, buddy? like, this is bigger than you, bigger than Alva. This that is... money went to nobody. Right. That didn't go to anybody. Yeah. That that money never existed. That's what they're trying to sell it for. It doesn't mean that's what they got, how they got it back. Yeah. It's just kind of sad. It's sad and infuriating all at the same time. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so the effects of this case was that, of course, not that the looting stopped, but everything had to go deeper underground because now it's becoming more and more risky. Yeah. The government is showing that they are willing to enforce these laws. There are people who are being punished for it. Now they have to be more and more careful with it. So do we want to go on to chapter 11, The Golden Rattle? Yes. All right. So I guess, you know, earlier I said that there was really only one chapter that was focused on museums, but I guess you could say like this whole section of the book is, but that chapter just kind of hits it harder. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, wait a second, there are other... This, this yeah. chapter definitely is about yeah. museums as well. Yeah. Yeah. So if you remember the Golden Rattles... The tombs the archaeologists got to excavate, they found 10 golden rattles in these tombs. And they know that some came from the tomb that had been looted, but they don't know for sure that it was 10 like the others, but they kind of presume it was. Some are accounted for. I think at this point it was five, four or five. Yeah. Like you mentioned, a call came in from anonymous tipster that there are some objects in the Museum of New Mexico that maybe are from Sapan. And this person is anonymous because they didn't want to get barred from this museum or probably others, potentially. Yeah. Bob Whitman's back on the case, which I like. He teams up with a new agent, Thomas Chavez. No, wait, that's right. That's the, that's the director. Um, Brian Midkiff yeah. is the new agent. And they meet with the director, Chavez, I mentioned. He's all cooperation. And <laughs> this happened several times in the chapter, like, he, he seemed very cooperative. He was very cooperative. Every time I was like, uh-oh. I know, uh -oh. yeah. You keep, uh -oh. When you have to reiterate that, yeah. you're like, mm, uh -huh. for now. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that was the, the uh, impending shift there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he seems cooperative. They've done repatriation with Native American stuff already. They're willing and wanting to do the right thing. And it was interesting because I think when he was discussing with the museum had done in regards to Native American repatriation, he would sometimes or quite often add that, oh, it wasn't required under NAGPRA. You know, like he kept saying like, oh, we're doing all this good stuff. He didn't explicitly say that it wasn't required, I think, but he was trying to say that these were the same cases, whereas they aren't because they were required under right. federal law to return yeah. them the yeah. Native American things where they were not necessarily for this one. Right. Yeah, like I guess there was the bison hide painting that was in the was owned by someone from Switzerland for a while, and they yeah yeah there there's that whole story and in that there. got repatriated to this museum yeah because it was from this place right they should be open and willing and this is where it kept looming is like right. oh no yeah they've done such great stuff right <laughs> so they go and to see the pieces and I note that basically they're only labeled with location and age which is garbage museum frankly. yeah i noticed that too you don't have a museum that's what you're doing right you just have stuff yep so they don't deserve it already i've decided oh well <laughs> <laughs> and so they find that this stuff was donated from john Bourne, who i think we talked about in a previous one a bit yes because they kind of knew or the book said that it's went to these went to him before yeah and he's kind of ridiculously open about his practices and just tells them straight up when he bought them, he doesn't remember who exactly from, but he bought them in 1987, he says, which you'll note is 10 years before the MOU is right. put in place. Yeah. And I thought for a while he was sinking himself with all this information, but I think he knew exactly what he was doing. I think he knew he was clear. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that, but yes. I thought, I think I thought you're this right. is bragging and, and bravado and he's in trouble. I was like, mm, no, I think he knew. That's what I kind of thought reading it is like, okay, buddy, less is more, less right, is more. Right, right. <laughs> the 
agents collect the artifacts, and then I just have legal stuff happens. <laughs> yes. Um, like we said, basically, the current laws didn't apply, and precedent had been set in previous chapters we talked about, or previous, previous episodes we talked about, how there had been attempts to get stuff back that wasn't returned. So getting these back legally would be a challenge. And essentially what happened is uh, the collector knew he couldn't sell these artifacts. And so like other collectors before, he donated to a museum to just offload it and get his tax write-off. Went the route of Elgin. <laughs> yep. They get in touch with Walter Alva, the archaeologist again, and ask him to come up once again, which he's apparently getting a little tired of doing this. And I don't blame him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get it too. Alva and Chavez, the museum director, have cordial conversation on the phone um, about coming to some agreement to, you know, loan it to them for a while. He would maybe do a talk for the museum. And then after a certain number of years, they would go back to Peru. Alva shows up in the U.S. and suddenly things have changed. Chavez isn't talking to him. Alva goes and inspects the artifacts in the vault. And so the rattle, he says, was 100% Sipan. He already knew that from the photos, even. The ear spools, he couldn't say, he says, for sure. And then there is a, a monkey's head, a screaming monkey's head, that he said was Sipan. Yeah. This is where it gets a little frustrating, because what he was talking about... So there had been an agreement with the U.S. government that the Sipan archaeological area would be protected, meaning not just the site itself, but the Sipan as an archaeological region. Right, but left it up to... Peru to just find the boundaries, right. and they never did for, for probably reasons and of so like enforcement. It, it essentially weakened the... I don't think that's the case here. Well, I think it, it, it not weakened, but like it created confusion. I feel like not defining it as the Sapan archaeological region and just saying this is from Sapan is where the confusion came in. Because what happened is the very archaeologist who gave money to Alva to yeah. continue his excavations said this is not Sapan. Right. But he meant this is not from necessarily from the, that exact site. Yeah, he, that's he's true. He's thinking it was from a different, a nearby site, right. a site that definitely falls within that region. So the problem was a matter of semantics. He was being overly <laughs> specific and not knowing it. Yeah. And Alva wasn't being specific enough in the exact words he used. But I can also see how with Alva, Sapan is bigger than the site. I don't and, necessarily fault you know, him in that. Yeah. It, it's to me, it's like semantics and interpretation, just not really. This is why laws need to be specific. You right. know, they should have defined better the geographical region of which i don't think they was. would have mattered in this case if they had he needed to because basically even though this was different things they were talking about it confused the matter enough right that that it, that it gave uh chavez and probably born the leverage to claim this is all garbage right yeah because it's like no get your stuff together no figure, matter what yeah they, it made it made the um it made all of and them just kind of look like they're just grabbing for things. Yeah, Is that, yeah. That's the accusations anyway. Right. But it, it caused Alves and Chava, Chavez to no longer have a civil relationship. Well, they already hadn't. It just kind of soured it more. I think. Yeah. I mean, at least they were, at the, you know, at the very beginning, they were open to negotiations, essentially. And Before Alva arrived in the U.S. By the time he'd arrived, before he'd seen the artifacts... It had already gone south. And I think that had to do with the press, if I'm not mistaken. This is true. The press was kind of running with it. They were, they were. Artifacts were seized from the museum. Yeah, they were and, really painting the museum in a bad light, which you know, we see that a lot when it comes to press. Mm -hmm. And I think it's becoming more and more common as, 
newspapers are trying to cut corners and have tighter deadlines and stuff. I don't know what the reasoning was for this, except that maybe it just made a more fascinating headline. Well, and the book maybe suggests this, but I think this actually might relate to the Heracles, Statue of Heracles situation as well. Oh, that's where right. Yeah. The donator was part of the problem too. Yeah. So the way this worked is he had donated one object fully to the museum. This was the monkey's head. And the rest were on loan to be donated later. This was for tax reasons, essentially. Yeah. So the museum didn't actually own the other three objects. And so the museum couldn't make the call on at least those three objects to return them. And if they donated the one, then he could take them back. Right. So this is complicated. Yeah. Yeah. This is really, it was interesting to me because, oh, I guess going back to the relationship between Alva and Chavez, it sounds like there was a little bit of ego involved too, potentially. That's just a note I have. For sure. But the media obviously didn't help. And then I guess at one point, the FBI tried to have a dinner to try and get everybody to come to terms and talk. But it... It was so high school drama. What? Yes. It was (laughs) weird. Like, I'm like, how did this even happen? Like, they ended up at separate tables. Well, Chavez says they arrived, he and his wife arrived, and... They had already started eating without them. And so they were so insulted, they go and sit at their own table. Yeah. Everyone else says, no, we arrived and they were sitting with other people and they invited them to join their table and he refused. Yeah. So I don't know. And I think I buy the the, uh, FBI agent's interpretation, frankly. Yeah. Because at least the way the book is depicting it, Chavez does not come off very well here. No. And I guess at one point, Chavez expressed his opinion that Alva just wanted to do a reverse looting type situation and just wanted things for his own museum. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay, but it's a museum in Peru where the object... Peruvian artifacts. Right. So I'm like, eh, because... I don't think you have... It's, again, more bad faith arguments. And I guess uh, Chavez wrote a letter to Alva or from, I guess, Chavez's attorney to Alva, maybe... But he, it's almost made it sound like Chavez is claiming the monkey head is from New Mexico because he, he talks about keeping these objects for the people of New Mexico. I don't think so. I think it's that old argument that the Brit- you know, in the British Museum example, the British people benefit from these objects being here. It, it expands their horizons. Yeah. So as trustee over objects of historical, archaeological, and ethnographical interest to the people of New Mexico, the museum would be remiss to release the monkey head to Dr. Alva. I think it just means the people of New Mexico find this interesting. Yeah, we can take care of it better. These people find it more interesting. Those old arguments, yes. But like the the use of ethnological in this context kind of triggered me because it's... It, it it seems almost colonialism in this context. Right. You know, like there's something about the word in this letter in the way it's written in the tone of the letter where it's like it doesn't work. Right. No. You know, doesn't hold up. Yeah. So ultimately, that meeting goes ridiculous, more ridiculous than what we've told you already. It's it's high school drama and entertaining at the same time. It just it blows my mind. I'm like, these are adults. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And. And they eventually do talk a little bit, and it doesn't go well. It's just so awkward. And so, like Chavez says, Alva's wrong to claim these artifacts because the that one guy said they weren't from Sipan, which, like I said, again, he's being obtuse here. Yeah. He has yeah. to know the difference. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't want to know the difference. Well, and where, even if they're not from 
Peru or not from the Sapan region, which they very much are, they're also not from New Mexico. Right. They're more likely to be from Sapan than they are in New Mexico. Well, they're definitely from, so, and you know they're from either Peru or the Peru region, and they're better placed there anyway. Right. There's no monkeys, no native monkey species in North America. Right. So this belongs south <laughs> yeah. of New Mexico, I promise you. According to the um, account from Midkiff, the FBI agent who tried to organize this peace arrangement, essentially, it gets more heated. Chavez's wife jumps between them like they're about to come to blows. <sighs> Alva marches away and basically goes straight to the press and accuses the museum of holding looted artifacts. Yeah. And that sinks for sure all possibility of getting these returned with an agreement. Not that there, I don't think there honestly was one anyway, but now there's definitely never going to be one. Right. And so that's where this story ends for the book. But once again, I have some more current details for All right. everybody. Spill the tea, Tristan. So once again, from traffickingculture.org, my favorite um, site to read, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure how to quite put this it. This is where you do your doom scrolling doom now. Doom scrolling, yeah. <laughs> Chavez retired in 2004, and the new director closed the exhibit in 2008 to focus on New Mexico history. Okay, so what happened to the object? All items on loan were returned to John Bourne, oh. to the collector. Well, boo. The monkey's head stayed with the museum as it had been fully donated. And around 2011, a similar monkey's head was being returned to Sapan uh, by Spain. Oh, it ended up in Spain. And so the museum essentially said they were interested in returning this as well, along with that. Okay. So the monkey's head is back. John Bourne, his collection was donated to Walter's Art Museum in Baltimore in 2009 along with $4 million to endow a center for the study of the art of the ancient Americas. And this included the three remaining pieces from Peru, including the rattle that was 100% from Sapan. That that kind of worries me. And, uh, yeah, and that's where they are today, basically. Yeah, just I, I understand like a center for the study of art of, you know, a different country. That sounds great on the surface, right? But knowing what we know from reading this book, where it's it like prolificate. Prolific. It's proliferating. Pro proliferating. Yeah. Words are hard, people. This <laughs> proliferating this black market. Yeah. Or potentially. We'll say potentially. Right. And I don't know this museum. I don't want to right. make any accusations. It just makes me go, hmm. Right. And yeah. we have seen cases in this book even where museums started off very looter-focused and have shifted their attention with new directors and stuff. Yeah. So no matter where this museum was in 2011, it doesn't mean it's where it is now. The fact remains that these objects are not with the country they should be in. And yeah. these 200 some other artifacts donated along with this. No idea where they came from. I don't know where they came Interesting. from. Interesting. Someone probably does. But so there is the end of that story. We come back once again from an odd quote from a lobbyist for a museum. Um, so this is the, I think it's the American Association of Museums, although it is a little hard. There are two museum associations with the same acronym. Okay. So yeah. I want to be a little cautious as to which one we're talking about. And so he said something just truly kind of unhinged. I'm not going to say the whole thing, but the author summarized it right after he finished saying it, basically. And the author says, so museums were actually helping to curb the trade in looted artifacts by acquiring them and then putting them on exhibit so that the source countries could demand them back, except that the museums won't give them back. Yeah, I quoted that last paragraph as well. It, what? Yeah, <laughs> like, so... <laughs> what? 
mad respect to the author for seeing through all this and just yeah. straight up calling them on their hypocrisy here. Yeah. I really appreciate how he's handling that. He's, you know, letting them have their voice and he is telling us exactly what they say. And then, but he doesn't hold back from saying, this is ridiculous. And I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, when I read that, I had to go back and read it again <laughs> because I was like, wait, is, what? Did they really? They did, yeah. absolutely. Very strange. Yep, but he summarized that nicely because otherwise it's almost a little hard to follow. All right, so chapter 12, our last chapter, The, the Jaguar's, Jaguar's head. head. So this goes back to the MOUs. Remember the memorandums of understanding the like bilateral agreements that we've had with several countries, but this time it's talking specifically about the one we have with Peru. And in this chapter, we start to get the idea that especially those opposed to the MOU felt like Peru was not doing their part. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like, yeah, you know, looking at how things are going, I can see like that argument, but also taken into consideration the United States and our resources versus Peru and their resources. They're kind of doing the best they can, I would imagine. And I know they talk about the airport desk that they created that was staffed 24-7 with an archaeologist. At first, I was like, I even put in my notes, did that really happen? And then, you know, they go on to say, yes, it actually happened. I guess they staffed it with students and they they did find things. I guess when something went through security and it was seen as a potential concern might be looted, they would send it to this desk where the students would identify it. And they were identifying things. It didn't seem proportional to the problem, but it's an interesting idea. And I think also I was thinking about it too, like with a desk that's staffed with these people, it's a visible thing that people who are smuggling, I wonder if it was a deterrent at all for like... It probably wasn't like visible from check-in. It probably went in an office somewhere they were taking it to, I'm guessing. Yeah, but like just knowing that that was there, I wonder if it deterred people at all. Or... Yeah, and they were, like you said, they were catching things. They were catching a lot of things the person thought was authentic and was actually fakes. <laughs> but And actually, at least one case where someone thought they had a fake and it, wasn't. And, and it was actually authentic because, and he's like, it was too cheap. There's no way it was real. Whereas actually the real ones were cheaper than the fakes were in that yeah. area. I guess the problem was though, around this time, smuggling textiles. Mm -hmm. And I guess that has always been one of the biggest exports well, not or, always but recent yeah. years for sure um and obviously fabrics can't be detected by x-ray machines i wonder they don't say i wonder why cadaver dog wouldn't be a part of this oh that's a good yeah they the cavern if you aren't aware folks cadaver dogs are amazing yeah we know of one that detected a what was it a ten thousand or a eight thousand year, year old burial, burial. yeah um so they are ridiculous and I'm sure there's ways of fooling their noses too, but that would still, I would think, catch some at least. Yeah. And I guess the this one woman they named Jacqueline, I guess they didn't want to give their actual name. She talks about how um, she almost got caught once yeah. with textiles, but even then she was able to get it through. The agent actually saw her kid's toy gun. Yeah. And needed to check that yeah, out. That's but she it said she, it made her really, really nervous. Yeah. Um, which I, yeah, I would imagine. Also, why would you pack your child's toy gun in the same bag as your ancient textiles? What right. did you think was going to happen? But anyways, so I feel like, I don't know. I, I guess I kind of have to empathize with Peru a little bit on this because they don't have the resources we have. Yeah. 
for sure. Although I appreciate too that they do need to show an effort. Yeah. And so they, in some ways, they were now, but it still wasn't enough by a lot of people's standards, including yeah. Alva. Yeah. So Alva comes back after the backflap case, and I guess he kind of goes on a bit of a warpath. Sounds like <laughs> it sounds like it. And he just kind of lays into the uh, government folks and the academics for not stepping up and dealing with this problem. Oh. Um, so it goes with an almost an aside story that I don't think we need to go into too much, but there's kind of some, uh, some repeated story beats in here that we've seen before again and again. So in a nutshell, in a very remote area, a uh, ranch hands spotted a burial site in cliffs and they go and start looting it and it gets bigger, you know, as more people find out bigger until the ranch owner finds out and takes all the stuff they took. And it wasn't a Sapan situation. It was, these were like common poor people burying their dead. Yeah. But, you know, they're still like taking mummies and tossing them off the cliff. Right. Not great. So they eventually get the word of it, archaeologists and the government does, and they actually jump on it and they deal with it. But the original looters get... Arrested and fined, I arrested think. Arrested and fined. And then the ranch owner... Nothing. Nothing. I went into this story thinking, oh, the ranch hand is going to report it because he's like, oh, things are kind of shifting. Mm -hmm. And then the story goes on and on. I'm like, wait, this sounds so familiar. Right. Nothing's changed. And then when they get arrested, I'm like, oh, OK, maybe something's changed. And then the ranch owner who ended up taking everything for, essentially first himself, nothing happens to him. So I'm like, OK. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he got to keep the things, but he that's didn't. about the end of it. Yeah, I mean, and I it, was just hoping for more. I was hoping, like, things have really changed, and the ranch hand reported it, and it's a protected site in C2, you know? No. I think the point of the story was to highlight that even at this point, it's still the poor who are getting punished. Yeah. The, the rich and wealthy people who are also just as, if not more than, responsible for this are getting off without any any sort of punishment at all. And I think in later on in the chapter, he talks about how the looter, the ranch hands, uh, were con arrested and convicted and had to pay a fine of $750, which is about a year's wage. And they, I, they did spend some time in jail. But yeah, it's, again, the poor being punished while the wealthy, or at least more wealthy, kind of get off with a slap on the wrist, if that. Mm -hmm. Eventually, an archaeologist came out to this site and studied this site and this kind of, how do you, I'm curious about how you felt about this, Tristan, because, you know, they talk a little about how kipus, knotted strings that were used for recording were found, and there were a ton found at the site. The looters just kind of tossed them aside, and I thought, oh, that's really cool. But, so they would place these, they used like an open air embalming, essentially. They would place these uh, deceased people on the cliffs so that, and it kind of became, he describes it as like an oracle where people could visit their dead and things like that. And he doesn't really go into where he got the ethnographic evidence for this or anything. I was very curious about this, just mm. like, okay, where, how do we know this? And, I, you know, I wanted to know more information about this specific site. But then he goes on to talking about how the archaeologists were removing the mummies, unwrapping them, and x-raying them. And I was like, and maybe this is me coming from the United States where we are, you know, we have NAGPRA and things like that that protect Native American remains. But I was like, wow, this seems really intrusive. And maybe they had a reason for doing it. But they didn't really discuss like what their research question was or what they were trying to accomplish by doing that. Because I'm like, OK, you just tried to save this site from these looters. But here you are essentially systematically or more systematically than a looter would unwrapping these mummies and x-raying them and stuff. I'm like, why? 
Okay, so I guess here's some thoughts on that. One is, yeah, you're right. Attitudes are different. I, is this could be more of a personal connection to this than we have with Native Americans being looted here in the U.S.? Yeah, there has to be some kind of difference that like that. could be part of the difference. It definitely wasn't all of the mummies either. Right. They did mention there was like basically shelves of these essentially still wrapped. So it wasn't all of them. Um, and then I don't know that the author would have necessarily said research questions and such. So we can right. hope that they had them, but I, I don't... sure hope so yeah. because it just seems so intrusive to me. And but I think old... I want to know more. Yeah, definitely would be nice. I feel like the author has established his credentials enough. Didn't flag me as you know this is a problem. Is this real? Kind of a situation like we talked about before. Yeah, I just I I guess maybe I'm overly ins- overly sensitive to that. Or whatever, and I was just yeah. like, "Ooh, why? Ooh, unwrapping them to me just seems very." Yeah, well, and some of them had like they'd cut a lot of them open, thinking there would be gold inside of them. So yeah. maybe they were even just working with those. I don't maybe. know exactly. Yeah, I would just. There's would a lot be... of questions, I guess. And as far as removing them, they definitely had to because they were going to be completely destroyed if they left them alone. Yeah, I guess. Um, that was a salvage operation situation, I would say. Anyway, so that's kind of my take on it. So yeah, you're you're right. There are some potential uncomfortable pieces in there, but I don't know enough to really weigh in. I th- I can think of ways they might not be. Right. And we can I guess hope that they are. <laughs> and so we wrap up this chapter by returning to New York in 1999 with another tip from something funny in a garage in Brooklyn. And the Again, that sounds very Sopranos <laughs> to me. <laughs> and so they show up expecting drugs and they find a gigantic Jaguar's head. <laughs> they didn't know what to do, basically. <laughs> they thought it was drugs. They thought it was drugs. They didn't know what the laws were. They didn't know what to do about it. They didn't make any arrests of the tenants because the tenants just said, I was here from the previous person. We didn't even really notice the box. And I guess later on, it was, I forget who said it, but somebody who had experience in this area was like, it was probably the result of like a deal gone wrong. It was probably a drop off point on its way to the airport and something happened and it just never made it to the airport for whatever the reason is. But I thought, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, they, now they've got this gigantic Jaguar head that they have to figure out what to do with it. They just leave it on the like police lawn. It sounds like for a while. Cause like, I don't know where do we put this thing? (laughs) And eventually they get authenticated and where it should go. And so they essentially drop it off the Guatemalan consul and say, here you go. And then there's a, a nice interview with the Guatemalan consul. And she says, basically, yeah, we get stuff dropped off all the time because they don't know what else to do with it. And the Jaguar head is still there. And she's like, it's going to be for a long time because we can't afford to send it back. Yeah, it was like the insurance and the cost of freight was just like a ridiculous amount. Because it was so so big and heavy, too. And then they don't know exactly where it goes either. Right. But I guess it was eventually sent back to a museum in Guatemala. Okay. And it was renamed. I love this. La Cabeza de Jaguar de Brooklyn. So essentially the Jaguar head of Brooklyn. Because so essentially because they had no idea, like they didn't know it existed until it showed up in this garage. So they have no idea where it belongs. So they just kind of created provenience as best they could and said, Jaguar head of Brooklyn. That's yeah. (laughs) You know, but I feel like it would be a really cool exhibit just on this topic alone, like, I feel like there's a lot of interpretive value in talking about how that happens. I don't know what they did with it as far as interpretation, but I feel like there's a potential there. But she said that pieces like this are also found in other source country embassies. Like there's 26 Mayan stones and ceramic pieces 
that were seized from Miami that were um, even in the basement, I guess, in a U.S. customs warehouse beneath the World Trade Center on 9-11. And somehow they survived the attack. And now and they were returned to Guatemala in 2003. How they survived that attack is weird. So I'm, I actually know some archaeologists that were on the project for the 9-11 uh-huh. excavation. And I was never clear on what they were excavating. I wonder if this was part of it. I don't think it was all of it. Well, and I, I think they treated that site as an archaeological site as well, just Could because be right. of the significance of it and the the whole the nature of the situation. But maybe, yeah, you should ask them. That would be really interesting uh, to learn. I, it sounded like the most miserable experience you could imagine. Oh, I can't even fathom. They were like working in the heat in PP, full PPE yeah. the whole time. And I guess it was just awful. And just and, the emotional and toll. Discur- yeah, the emotional toll. And, yeah. yeah. It was not pleasant, I guess. All right. So the author starts to kind of wrap up the section here and kind of resummarizes most of the points we've talked about with museums and their role and everything. And then as he does so often, he has a short statement that just so nicely encapsulates so much. He says, talking about some dealers that were going to be prosecuted, the items confiscated from them were reported to be worth about $400,000. But in cases like this, the monetary value is, of course, barely relevant. Wow. And like, it he taught this is I, I actually wrote that out as well because yeah, it's so rare that even you and I encounter people outside of archaeology or those that are really interested and invested in archaeology that can make that connection. Yeah. He talks about how some of the items that have been seized were so sacred that when they were repatriated in this case to tribes in both New Mexico and Arizona, they had to be purified due to being like defiled by Mm -hmm. people other than whom they belong to. And like, first of all, that breaks my heart. (laughs) But how do you place a monetary value on that? You know, it, it would be like if somebody stole a sacred object from a church or from any place of worship, how would you put a monetary value on that? And that's kind of what they're dealing with. I also thought it was interesting, and he talks about in previous chapters how a lot of items are, are, you know, sent to Europe and kind of laundered or they sit in places for a while before they can find a buyer and everything. But a lot of stuff is repatriated to South and Central America because of bilateral deals like the MOUs and because they usually arrive from the source country, whereas those from like Italy, Greece, Turkey, whatever, um, are more likely to stay in European laundering points for a while. But when I was reading that, I was like, but we've seen instances and maybe it's just not the norm or where like Peruvian artifacts were sent over to Europe for a little while and then came here. So maybe people, they're not seeing the need to do that anymore. Or they're not spending the time elsewhere. They do say at one point that I'm not sure if this was part of it or not, but there's a closing talk with Whitman basically. And, you know, he wasn't sure how much they were stopping, but he did see the practice change. They go more underground, become more careful. Um, Someone at some point also observed that they closed up the airports, so that wasn't easy, but then they just take it overland to Bolivia and, and ship it out from another country. Yeah. So there are other countries, but I don't think it's spending time in those because it seems like a lot of the time recency is really important to the collectors, how yeah. freshly collected they are. Yeah, that's true. So if they're just sitting in a warehouse somewhere, they're losing value. Yeah. Yeah. But basically the whole endeavor is getting riskier and riskier. 
um, he observes that he's seen more lawyers as well, which is telling. That wraps up section two of Stealing History. For our final episode, we are going to do all of section three and the conclusion. But before we do that, this episode is going to release in December, and there's no way we're going to be able to get this read, recorded, edited, and ready for January 1st. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to wrap up the year with a little special episode, just so you're aware. We're going to talk about exactly, uh, if you have any suggestions on things you'd like us to talk about specifically, you can let us know. But I'm thinking we might cover like some of our favorite episodes or books we've read in yeah, the podcast like so annual far. annual wrap-up. <laughs> Maybe even just talk about some of our jobs a little bit because we talk about archaeology in general, but our jobs are quite different. So maybe some of that. Yeah, we'll so see. if you have any questions for us, this is a great time to ask them. Yeah, and a good time for comments if you have comments you want to share. Also, if you have favorite episodes or books that you want us to acknowledge, let us know. But in the meantime, we'll get that episode out in January. And then we'll finish up this book for the February release. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this ends. Me so, too. Uh, we'll have, see you all next time. Have a good one. Keep reading. Archaeology Books for Fun is brought to you by the Florida Public Archaeology Network, a program of the University of West Florida. You can find out more about archaeology and about FPAN at fpan.us. We appreciate any feedback, so if you're listening to us as a podcast, please leave us a review. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Thanks for listening.